AM 1600 KIV 93.7 FM. I'm Eddie Aragon, the Rock of Talk. This is Project Pushback Radio for a Saturday afternoon, right in the throes of the election season, election 2020. Glad to be here with Stefan Helgeson, who's the author of The Eleventh Hour, and that is a compendium on pushing back against the liberal left here in the state of New Mexico, your guidebook, and of course, that uh, great uh, website, projectpushback.com, that he leads us through every single morning with your top 10 by 10. Stefan Helgeson, good afternoon. Good afternoon, and thank you, Eddie. Welcome, everybody, to another Project Pushback Corner half-hour show. I am your host, Stefan Helgeson. As Eddie mentioned, I am the author of the book, The Eleventh Hour, How You Can Push Back at the Liberal Left. It's my third book on conservatism and the Republican Party, and my fourth book altogether on American politics. Before my retirement in 2004, I was a U.S. diplomat for 20 years, and I served my country in about 30 different foreign lands. I was privileged to work under four presidents and 13 different ambassadors, and I saw, as they say, how the sausage was made, up close and personal, inside the federal government, albeit from thousands of miles outside the U.S., in Europe, the Caribbean Basin, and the Pacific Rim. It wasn't always a walk in the park working with and inside the bureaucracy, and I can tell you that I had my share of run-ins with the State Department types who had a very inflexible way of implementing American foreign policy. So after 20 years, I knew it was time for me to hang up my spurs and say goodbye to a job that took me around the world and gave me the opportunity to meet thousands of people from literally all walks of life. Instead of going back to my home state of Wisconsin or settling down in Washington, D.C., as so many of my colleagues did, I decided on retiring to the East Mountains of New Mexico, thinking I would just be and smell the roses. And that didn't last long. In 2004, I was asked to manage a Republican candidate's campaign for governor. Unfortunately, this campaign ended rather abruptly, but that experience gave me a front-row seat to New Mexico's special brand of no-holds-barred politics. Later, I accepted a position in the Richardson administration as the director of the Office of Science and Technology. That lasted for about four years, and I probably could have stayed longer, but the governor discovered I wasn't a Democrat, so he eliminated my position along with 52 others. Working for New Mexico was an opportunity to see how this complex state of ours was run from the inside. And like the federal government, I found that our bureaucracy was every bit as challenging and frustrating as the one I left behind. New Mexican politics is plagued by partisanship, especially Democrat partisans. Nothing was viewed outside the filter of political ideology. This was especially evident in Santa Fe, where the one-party domination was all-encompassing. But in 2010, that all came to an end for me. For the last 10 years, I've been working hard to get conservative candidates elected to public office. I managed a Republican candidate's campaign for lieutenant governor and helped an advisor on another, all the while writing articles for the newspapers and doing the occasional radio interview. But last year, I felt like I needed to be doing more, so I set up a political action forum and a website called Project Pushback. Project Pushback's aim is to be a voice for conservative thought 
and a place to discuss what's really going on in our countries and in our state's politics. My goal is to bring news stories that go behind the scenes of the mainstream media's one-side reporting in an effort to encourage all of us who believe in smaller, more efficient government that tracks with our constitutional values to push back at the liberal left's talking points. It's sure not easy in a state like ours where 45% of the registered voters are Democrats and only 30% are Republicans. But we can't let that stop us, especially this year when there's so very much at stake. Every morning, before the crack of dawn, I research about 15 to 20 different conservative websites like the American Conservative, Breitbart, The Daily Caller, National Review, Town Hall, and others. From their websites, I pick out articles that I think will interest my readers. I then bundle them together in an email with links to those stories and send that email out free of charge to an ever-growing distribution list. If you'd like me to put you on my mailing list to receive it, go to my website, www.projectpushback.com, and just send me your contact information. That's all there is to it. Your information is safe and secure with me, and I don't sell it or share it with anyone. You can cancel it any time. No hard feelings whatsoever. I recently set up a new website called MediaWatcher.org, a place to reveal the truly off-the-wall things that pundits and other people in power are saying that go way beyond the pale. If you're interested, check it out at www.MediaWatcher.org. All right, let's get down to today's topic. Who and the heck are America's voters, and how many of us will vote in November? Our electorate is a real mixed bag. In the last presidential election, 127 million Americans went to the polls or cast an absentee ballot. 65 million people voted for Hillary Clinton while a little over 62 million voted for Donald Trump. But fortunately for America, Trump managed to garner 306 electoral votes, giving him the win. Our voting percentage was a little over 61%, and it's anybody's guess how many will step up to the plate and cast their ballots in less than a month. By the way, for those of you who are interested in statistics, Our highest turnout ever was in 1876 with 81.8%. Our lowest was in 1996 at 49%. This year, the coronavirus could play a major role in the percentage, but there is one thing for certain, and that is the number of absentee voters will far outstrip those of 2016 because many voters are either living in fear of crowds or have been energized to vote early, many of them by mail. Several political prognosticators are guessing that the number of total votes will be much higher than in 2016. We should all hope that that is true, because the more Americans that participate in the process, the better it is for our democracy. Well, let's start talking about female voters, the ones everybody wants. In the 2016 presidential election, 47% of white women voted for Donald Trump, while 45% 
voted for Hillary Clinton. And while this number is lower than the number the president gave after the election, now he said it was 52% of women who voted for him, it was still a plurality. However, when you dig deeper, Clinton beat Trump by women of all color voters. They gave 48% to her to his 46%. Non-white women only accounted for 16% of Donald Trump's votes. The bottom line is that the Dems feel they have the non-white female voters sewed up wherever it is, either in urban or suburban areas. But since more white women tend to live in the suburbs, this provides a target-rich environment for Democrats to beat the bushes for new supporters for their candidate, Joe Biden. And they have been feverishly beating those bushes. VP candidate Kamala Harris has been very active trying to recruit more female voters by stressing that Donald Trump is a misogynist and doesn't care about women's issues. Otherwise, he wouldn't have nominated a pro-life Catholic by the name of Amy Coney Barrett to the Supreme Court. This nomination is bound to stir up a hornet's nest of opposition among the Democrats' base, but it's anybody's guess if it persuades more women in total to go to their side. Why? Because there are many female pro-life supporters among specific demographic groups, like Latino voters, and among devout Catholics. So the Dems have their work cut out for them. Plus, women are not one monolithic voting group. They're different, just like men. According to the Pew Research Institute survey done after the 2016 election, their voter portrait painted a voting population that is older, whiter, and less educated than the exit polls indicated. College graduates were just 37% of voters. Those over 65 made up 27% of the electorate, more than double the share of under 30 voters at only 13%. While the exit polling showed Trump winning college-educated whites by three percentage points, Pew found he actually lost them by 20. But what about the rural-urban-suburban divide? According to the U.S. Census, about 46 million Americans live in the nation's rural counties. 175 million live in the suburbs and small metro areas. And about 98 million reside in its urban core counties. As a group, the population in rural counties grew 3% since 2000 far less than their 8% growth in the 1990s. Urban county population rose 13% since 2000, and the population in suburban and small metro counties went up 16%, showing growth rates somewhat higher than in the 1990s. It's this suburban growth that interests all political strategists. For whatever reason, and there may be many, the suburbs are gaining population, and that means many in that population are women. This is not to say that urban America has lost its luster for Democrats. It hasn't. Births are up, and the influx of new immigrant and migrants 
is also up. And that, too, means voters. The loser has been rural counties that have lost population. And while the population is aging in all three county types, it is occurring more rapidly in suburban and small metro counties. The 65 and older population grew 39% in the suburbs in the last 20 years, compared with 26% in urban and 22% in rural counties. Once again, this is a target-rich environment. A few months back, President Obama's former chief of staff, Rahm Emanuel, wrote an op-ed for the Washington Post in which he underscored the importance of the suburban white college-educated woman demographic. He said that the 59% Democratic victory of this voting group in 2018 was a positive sign for the Biden campaign in 2020, and that if Biden's people are smart, they'll focus on the hot-button issues of the suburban woman. Those are the intense dislike for Trump, abortion, he calls it, reproductive rights, gun safety, that is gun control, and racial inequality. Looking at America's age demographics, millennials have surpassed baby boomers as the nation's largest living adult generation, so says the U.S. Census Bureau. As of July of last year, those millennials who we define as being between the age of 23 and 38 numbered 72.1 million, whereas baby boomers ages 55 to 73, my age group, numbered 71.6 million. By the way, millennials are also referred to as Generation Y, and they were born between 1981 and 1986. Now that we got the ages straight, the millennial population is projected to peak in 2033 at uh, just around 75 million. Well, here are some quick facts about them. They're the largest generation in the U.S. labor force, if they've got a job. Many of them still live under their parents' roofs or in a college dorm or some other shared living situation. More millennial households are in poverty than households headed by any other generation. Millennial households dominate the ranks of the nation's renters. About half of all cohabiting couple households are headed by a millennial. A few years ago, they surpassed all other generations in the number of household heads who were single mothers. And among heads of households, they became the generation with the largest number identifying as multiracial. Millennials make up 35% of the total workforce, as I said before, and it's said that they are the most tolerant of the U.S. generations because they espouse high levels of support for interracial marriage, immigration, and marriage equality. In 2008, they turned out in record numbers to vote for President Barack Obama. In that election, 54% of young white voters gave their votes to Obama. In 2012, young whites gave the majority of their votes to the Republican candidate, Mitt Romney. And in the 2016 presidential election, young whites voted for Donald Trump over Hillary Clinton by a margin of 48 to 45%. Now that begs the question, how racially liberal are white American millennials after all? 
Using data from a 2014 study called Cooperative Congressional Elections, white millennials readily acknowledge racial inequalities and a few reported feeling fearful about members of other racial groups. The overwhelming majority were said to feel angry about the existence of racism and further stated they felt sad when they thought about racial injustice. Fully 69% of white millennials believe that racism is a major problem in the country. Parenthetically, this could account for why so many of them have joined in protests sponsored by Black Lives Matter in major cities like Portland, Seattle, Chicago, and elsewhere over the past six months. Interestingly, from that same study, when asked about institutionalized racism and racial privilege, seven out of ten young white millennials believe that hard work is all it takes to become wealthy. Obviously, millennials' views on race and inequality in our society are pretty complex and varied and are constantly being studied. The fact is that generational differences have long been a factor in U.S. politics going back to the 70s, especially during the Vietnam War years. Millennials and Gen Xers stand apart from their two older generations, baby boomers and the so-called silent generation. On many issues, millennials have a distinctive, increasingly liberal outlook. In the first year of Donald Trump's presidency, only 27% of them approved of his job performance, while around 67% disapproved. Strangely enough, among Gen Xers, 36% approved and 57% disapproved. In other words, less than the millennials. Contrast this with the first year of Barack Obama's presidency, when 64% of millennials approved of his performance and 55% of Gen Xers approved of the way he was handling his job as president. I know that's a lot of statistics to take in, but it's really important to understand this generation and its influence on our government and on who is elected. Millennials are comprised of more than 40% of non-white voters, the highest share of any adult generation. Older adults, by contrast, are 79% white. Therefore, it's no surprise that many millennials express more liberal views on many issues and lean more favorably towards the Democrats than do their older counterparts. The bottom line is that millennials remain the most liberal and democratic of the adult generations. Not surprisingly, this pattern of generational differences in political attitudes varies across the issues such as immigration, for example. Since 2015 there have been double-digit increases in the share of each generation saying that immigrants strengthen the country, yet while large numbers of millennials, fully 79%, say immigrants do more to strengthen than burden the country, only about half of the older adults, 47%, agree with that statement. When it comes to foreign policy, millennials are also the most likely among the four generations to express the view that good diplomacy is the best way to ensure peace. 77% of them say this. When it comes to agreement among the generations, millennials tend to agree with older adults that trust in the federal government is about as low as it can possibly get. 
Only 15% of millennials say they trust the government almost always or most of the time, while only 18% of the older adults do. Again, on the political front, millennials are the only generation in which a majority holds consistently liberal or mostly liberal positions. Only 12% have consistently held mostly conservative attitudes, the lowest of any generation. I'll repeat that. That's only 12%. Again, according to the Pew Research Center, millennials continue to have the highest proportion of independence of any generation. But when their partisan leanings are taken into account, they're also the most supportive generation of Democrat policies, as I said. More than four out of ten millennials registered describe themselves as independents compared with 39% of Gen Xers. This contrasts with a smaller proportion of baby boomers who are down there at 32%. Considering their strong democratic and liberal leanings, two-thirds of millennials disapproved of Trump's job performance. It's no surprise, then, that most millennials prefer bigger government. 57% of them stated this, while only 37% say they wanted smaller government providing fewer services. Also not surprising is that a majority of them, 57%, stated that government doesn't do enough for younger people. They're joined by baby boomers at a surprisingly high 48% that say the same thing. On the subject of health care, two-thirds of millennials say the government has the responsibility to ensure health coverage for everyone more than any other generational group. The majority of millennials and Gen Xers say Quote, poor people have hard lives because government benefits don't go far enough to help them live decently. Close quote. Just about a third in each group say poor people have it easy because, quote, they can get government benefits without doing anything in return. Close quote. Remember, that's only 33%. Overall, 62% of the public says the economic system in this country unfairly favors powerful interests. And this tracks with nearly 66% of millennials that say that the system unfairly favors powerful interests. On the question of whether or not the U.S. should be active in world affairs, the overall public is divided. Millennials, by a modest 51%, say the U.S. should focus on problems in our own country. In a poll taken just before the 2018 midterm elections, millennials were far more likely to hold the view that the country needs to continue making changes to give blacks equal rights with whites than did the baby boomers and the silent generation. It'd be my guess that if a similar survey were to be taken today, two years later, after the protests following the murder of George Floyd, the percentages would be even higher among millennials wanting to level the playing field for America's blacks. On the question of whether or not millennials will become more conservative as they age, judging by the foregoing statistics and studies, one would have to say, no, they won't. This is a question that's obviously concerning top political strategists within the Trump and Biden campaigns. If this trend holds true, and we see a gradual decline in the baby boomer and older adult populations, Millennials will replace conservative older adults and become a powerful liberal democratic force in the years to come. America is still divided by race, gender, generation, 
and by many social and cultural issues that are boiling up and manifesting themselves right out on our streets. And they have come up for discussion in our presidential debates, in the media, and in the campaigns. This presidential election defies comparison with previous elections and will undoubtedly go down in history as one of the most difficult to predict. There is no doubt, however, that it is an existential one as the outcome will determine whether or not we will continue on the path of Trump-led conservatism or revert back or fall back to an Obama-like quasi-socialist big government one. Whichever way the votes fall, this election will anger half of the country and please the other half and will ensure that we continue to experience further division. Neither outcome will bring us closer together that is for certain. The real question is, do we have the stomach for it? And can we live with more protests and more animus, perhaps for years to come? Many of us are worried, more worried than we've been since the turbulent 70s or the racially charged times of the 90s. Entire communities are under threat of violence. Our crime rates are escalating, while some mayors are hollowing out their police forces or trying to totally defund them. Some are turning a blind eye to cries for more freedom of speech and a swift and appropriate application of law and order. And we're experiencing a real threat of minoritarianism and government overreach on the part of many of our state governments that have locked down their local economies, like ours in New Mexico. This election will be a referendum on our liberty. Make no mistake about that. The choices are clear and way too important to stay home. So please don't. I hope this journey through the world of the American voter has opened your eyes a bit. Now I'd like to leave you with some words of encouragement as we count down the final three weeks toward Election Day. Remember that your voice counts and that your opinion matters and that your vote is essential in November. You have the power and you must exercise it now. Stand up for what you believe in and do not be bullied by the left. Do not let them set the agenda for your conversations and do not let them push you around, push you into a corner, or marginalize you. As I said, this election is an important referendum on our core values and our future. And we are presented with two very different presidential candidates who espouse two very different visions for America. Donald Trump has demonstrated the ability and willingness to lead and to make difficult decisions based on what is possible under very trying circumstances. Most of all, he understands what's at stake for America, just as you do. He hasn't shied away from the challenges that face us. On the contrary, he's taken them on time and time again, and he showed a resoluteness and consistency that is admirable. You don't have to like the way Donald Trump speaks, the way Donald Trump looks, the way Donald Trump handles his opponents, but you do have to admire the results of what Donald Trump has done in the last four years. We in New Mexico also need to elect three new congressional representatives and one senator and send them to Washington. So let's please support our homegrown conservative candidate. Theirs is an uphill battle, but it is a battle that must be joined and fought by all of us. If you don't know the candidates, 
It's not too late to do so. Log on to their websites and read their policy statements. Go to their meetings and ask questions. If we've learned anything from our months-long lockdown in New Mexico, it is that without an ongoing pushback and dissent, we'll get more of the same kind of government from our leaders. It's a simple choice. Either we make our voices heard or be drowned out by an abdication of our responsibility. As I said earlier, if you'd like me to put you on my mailing list to get an early morning wake-up call email with a dozen political stories of interest of the day, just log on to my website, www.projectpushback.com, and send me your contact information. I'm generally finished reviewing all the websites and ready to send out the email about 6.30 a.m., so it's usually in your hands by the time you have your first cup of coffee. While you're at it, think about getting my third book on the Republican Party. It's called The Eleventh Hour, How You Can Push Back at the Liberal Left. It's available through Amazon.com or you can order it on my website. Incidentally, I'm working on a new book, which will hopefully be ready in the spring. This one will focus on the many revolutions or near-revolutions America has experienced since our founding. It's called The American Journey, The Promise and the Curse of Two Centuries of Revolution. More on this later. Well, that's enough commercials for today. Be sure to tune in to this program at the same time next week for more of the Project Pushback Half Hour. And please remember to keep your radio dial firmly fixed on KIVA AM 1600 for the absolute best in conservative talk radio. So long for now. <laughs>